welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scullin. And I'm Sarah Brightnika. So Sarah, one thing I've noticed over the past couple of years is that a lot of people are going to Japan. Have you noticed this? A lot of my friends are going to Japan, at least. Yeah, my my friends are lining up to go to Japan. I've been very envious uh, to watch their Instagram stories. I haven't been. Uh, We know a couple of people that have been as well. Apparently, Mm -hmm. the yen is not doing so well. So the purchasing power uh, has made it the, the time to go. Mm-hmm. Yes. Aside from cherry blossoms and, and everything else. Yeah, but I think it's also just a very interesting and different place. Well, here's the thing about Tokyo. And again, I haven't been, but I've read a lot about Tokyo. And I watched an aerial YouTube video of a helicopter tour. Before okay. we so had you've this basically been there. So I understand very well. But what is shocking to me and what stands out, astonishing really, is just like how sprawling and dense this city is. It just goes on forever seemingly there's green spaces scattered throughout and all i mean you always hear about how great japan's transit system is and all of it is also connected by this amazing transit system so Mm -hmm. it's this really interesting case study it's so different from everything that we have here in terms of what our cities offer the planning everything yeah and you know we've been talking about housing a lot on this podcast and despite it being i believe the most populated city on the planet people it is still somehow affordable to live in. So to figure out how they managed to achieve that and what some of the lessons that we might learn from Tokyo are, Joe McReynolds is with us on the podcast today. He is the co-author of Emergent Tokyo. He's also an urban studies scholar affiliated with Keio University in Japan, uh, among a variety of other Uh, very interesting credentials, but we're talking about Tokyo today. So Joe, thank you so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Thank you so much for having me. So I I read your book, Emergent Tokyo, and I've seen you talk about it, but I want to get some more of your backstory and how you got into researching Tokyo and what drew you to that field. So I came into this field in a very strange way. I'm actually a defense intelligence analyst by training. Uh, I study the Chinese military, Chinese information Hmm. warfare capabilities, uh, that sort of thing. I actually, I did a book on the Chinese military almost a decade ago at this point. Uh, But I spent my 20s in national security work And I got to travel the world a lot. And the more I traveled, uh, the more I saw that every city worked so differently. And they they would often paint with different emotional color palettes, so to speak. They would enable different kinds of living and different kinds of community. And Tokyo was just the most fascinating city in the world to me. And And it just so happens that... I had studied Japanese language since high school. I had lived in Japan before. And so I had the the language background and the and the in-country background to really start reading up Japanese language books, you name it, trying to understand what's going on. Why is Tokyo allowing people to do such cool things that I just wasn't seeing in American cities? LA, New York, you name it. And that became kind of an obsession over my 20s. Uh, and then I, I finally I moved to Japan as a visiting fellow at the Japanese Ministry of Defense, uh, working with them 
Hmm. on Chinese information warfare stuff, just totally unrelated, but using that visa as uh, a springboard uh, to become a visiting professor uh, and at Keio University, one of Japan's major universities, to do the urban studies research that was really what got me up in the morning. Hmm. So uh, talk a bit about what you found so fascinating about the city. What do you think it is that makes Tokyo unique from an urban design and development perspective? Well, I think with Tokyo, a lot of things that strike people visually when you first come is, you know, the the cliche of the the balance of, you know, traditional and modern, but that's so many places in the world. Uh, what I found fascinating was the balance of the mega city and the micro city. Uh, on the one hand, Tokyo is arguably the largest city in the world, and just gigantic. You go up to the top of Tokyo Tower, Sky Tree, uh, one of those major landmarks, and look out, and it's just as far as the eye can see, just this vast, vast cityscape. But at the same time, it's one of the most intimate cities in the world. You hmm. go through Tokyo neighborhoods, and you just feel this this sense of intimate community. Um, you sit in four seat bars and restaurants and chat with the the owner, the master, and you build interpersonal connections. And that's something that increasingly feels missing from a lot of American cities, and I, I, and honestly, I'm sure Canadian cities as well, where mm-hmm. things get starbucksified everything is a kind of upscale fast casual everywhere and nowhere at the same time kind of kind of cityscape and so tokyo feeling so intimate and personal but also so vast how that came to be i i I was wondering also could we learn from it could we build western cities or even just tweak our Western cities to bring some of that Tokyo-esque energy to our lives and our communities. Can I ask you a little bit about this notion of having a downtown? Because I've read that Tokyo doesn't have like a clearly defined downtown center, which is difficult to uh, imagine, right? If you're used to living in a city like Toronto, Vancouver, New York, how does that kind of play into some of the uh, characteristics of the city that you just mentioned of this really like localized feel? Yeah, so the the really interesting thing about Tokyo is you have this essentially this ring, uh, the Yamanote line loop, it's called, but just picture a circle and put a few dozen dots on that circle. And each one of them to varying degrees uh, can be its own kind of uh, major center with a, a major a major train station at the heart and then branching out from the train station you have shopping you have uh major businesses you have in many cases skyscrapers you have um you have intimate uh residential communities as well uh all of the above and so you have many different poles rather than a single cbd and that's actually been a very successful model. Um, it's not one that is necessarily the easiest to imitate, especially, you know, you have an existing CBD, you don't necessarily have the land configuration to do 
uh, you know, a big plane to do uh, a, a whole string of of uh, es- essentially uh, vill- not villages, but but essentially little confederated towns. And yeah, it's it's a really cool model. I'm not sure how well we can emulate it, but uh, there is actually the Tokyo Metropolitan Government, which oversees all of these wards and and the the major stations and districts within them. The the Tokyo Metropolitan Government has uh, really pushed to make sure that no single district of Tokyo becomes a de facto CBD. Uh, whether that's Shinjuku in the west or or Marunouchi in the east, it's the the goal is to kind of keep that balance across the city and avoid over centralization. And and there are me- mega corps that control everything from transit to real estate to shopping to to housing development uh, in many different slices of Tokyo that both compete and cooperate with each other. And so when you're at a different station, uh, it's really who the, the power players are in building up that section of the city can be totally different. Hmm. How, how have they managed to achieve this balance or mix of population growth uh, and density while still preserving some of the character that you were talking about earlier and you know small shops and not just chains what's sort of the history and policies that have led to the situation today so to me those are actually two different questions but both very good questions the first one is um how does tokyo handle housing and the answer is they build a ton of it um it's helped that uh, zoning in Japan is now handled at the national level. And if you wanted a check on on NIMBYism, that's really the best you can possibly do. Um, the, the fact that uh, zoning is handled at the national level with, with most building then being by right uh, means that if, if you want to build housing on a particular plot of land and the zoning allows for it, um, it it's just you go ahead and build. It's, it's, you're not tied up in multiple years of permits and, de- and debates with local groups, you name it. And people just kind of come to accept that. And, and, that's something in America right now. We're seeing some zoning uh, control move back from the very local level to the state level. I don't think we can really do it nationally in America because of how our constitution works. But at the state level, you're starting to see um, state level control or influence on zoning to try and force cities to build more housing uh, versus the existing baby boomer owners just their their housing uh, value goes up and up so that's just building a lot of housing and making the rules possible to do that that's that's huge um, on the topic of zoning uh, on the housing front key thing for building housing is that you can build housing in nearly every zoning of any every zone of of Tokyo and I know that zoning is not a sexy topic. I, I imagine a lot of 
our listeners right now are kind of uh, just. It is on this podcast. This podcast. Yeah. No, this is a common <laughs> a common thread in many of our conversations. Is oh, own. okay. So you're, oh, on, we, uh, you're in safe territory. All right. We, we, we got the weird freaks. All right, you delightful weirdos. So Tokyo has a style of zoning that is hierarchical. Um, what that means is that basically there's 12-ish nuisance levels and if you are if your zone is nuisance level six you can do anything one through six in that zone and so with the exception of like a few exclusively industrial zones you can just build housing anywhere and and the how much housing you can build in terms of sheer size um is a a formula calculated by things like road width um now when it comes uh to lot size, this is another key thing, there are no minimum lot sizes. And for a very long time, uh, there was very punishing inheritance taxes in Japan, as much as 50% or more due upon the death of the patriarch. And so you'd see lots getting divided up smaller and smaller um, in order to sell off part of the lot to pay the inheritance tax. Mm. And that was a, a key factor in why Tokyo has so many smaller size lots now. But we don't want to talk about mom and pop business surviving. That also comes back to zoning uh, and in a really fascinating way, I think, which is the most residential zoning in Japan. Let's call it nuisance level one, uh, just exclusively residential, they call it. Except to them, exclusively residential means that in the bottom floor of your row house, you can have a small restaurant, bar, workshop, uh, boutique, gallery, you name it. And as long as you're not causing a big nuisance to your neighbors, which that is an an amorphous uh, question, gray area, that ultimately you just kind of talk with your neighbors and they and everyone's reasonable and hopefully the cops are not getting involved um, but yeah you can it, you can walk through a neighborhood in Tokyo and you'll see all these little mom and pop small businesses in the ground floors of row houses and sometimes it's the uh, the folks living above the mom and pop business that are running it and hmm. other times it's a, just like an an older person who decided they they would like some young whippersnappers running a cafe downstairs and that would feel nice and lively to them and so they they rent it out and maybe for cheap and they don't really care about maximizing you know va- rent value because they're just trying to have something nice for their neighborhood their neighbors would be mad if they you know let in something that no one liked or wanted so they're they're considerate for the most part of what their neighbors would like to come in and yeah it just completely changes the feel of a neighborhood because you you walk through a residential bedroom community in america and i've seen this in toronto a bit too though i don't know toronto nearly as well where and unless you know someone in that neighborhood, there's nothing for you there. Uh, just mm-hmm. all doors are closed to you. Maybe you look at the you know pretty lawns or 
what or architecture or whatever but but it's not a place for you but if i walk through a neighborhood in tokyo a, a residential neighborhood where i don't know anybody there are all these little small cafes boutiques um little bookstores uh, art galleries you name it that i can just wander into and they are not money-making enterprises for the most part someone is um you know taking a not very money-making not very money-losing uh position to do what they love and that's intimate and personal and it, it the whole size of the shop might be as big as my bedroom or living room here in Washington, D.C., where I'm speaking to you right now. And that's okay. It actually adds to the feeling of, oh, I'm experiencing someone's personal happiness, someone's personal vision, and they're sharing that with me. Like, you talk to people in generic white collar jobs as I often do, since my day job is, at the end of the day, a generic white-collar job. And you ask, like, in another life, what would be your personal passion? What would be the thing that you would do if, if the money worked out and that wasn't really an issue? And, and everyone's got, like, oh, I'd have so much fun running a little cafe or, uh, or a little bookstore, maybe, just, you know, just whenever I felt like it. Like, everyone has these little dreams, but the microeconomics of how our cities work in uh, in America and Canada and Western cities, for the most part, put these dreams way out of reach. You have to spend an incredible amount of money uh, to get started, and y- most of them fail within five years, I believe it is. Um, in Tokyo, I know a woman who she used to work on Wall Street. She was in finance um, and she moved to Tokyo and opened like a six seat bar. Her total startup cost to open that bar was a little under two grand US. Wow. Which is for, I don't know if, I I assume your listeners can guess at, at. bar economics in, in America, but uh, <laughs> yeah. it's a liquor license in American cities can run six figures sometimes because they're traded as, as like a scarce commodity. And they're just all these amazingly high startup costs for a little mom and pop business. And because of that, if you pursue a dream, it's a real corporate thing you're doing. And you had better appeal to a mass audience you would better scale up because you have to you have to win at a large enough scale to escape the inertia of those massive fixed costs that you started with and when you don't have that and you're also backed up by um by tax policies that support small business with um, easy access to high quality education, universal health care, which I know is a big uh, Canadian versus American difference. But when you have all of that wind at your back, you can just try things and see if they make you happy. And you don't necessarily have to quit your day job. You can, you know, just open it on the weekends in your ground floor for your neighbors and a few people come by and you enjoy it or you don't, you can just be a part of your communal fabric 
in a kind of a micro commercial way. And people find that really fulfilling. I, I, I know I've been talking for quite a bit here, uh, but I will give one final thing on this, which is there's a bar, about a six seat bar in a drinking district in uh, Tokyo called Drunkard's Alley, Nombei Yokocho. And in Drunkard's Alley, this bar is incredibly bland in every sense. The drinks are normal drinks. There's no particular atmosphere. Um, there's just nothing remarkable about this bar. And someone had carved into the wood of the bar uh, in English had carved, this is better than all the bars of San Francisco. <laughs> and I'm sure they, they, a tourist from San Francisco, and I'm sure they genuinely meant it. And I think what they were responding to was that intimacy. They were responding to the size of being in a six-seat bar with a bartender who makes conversation with you and that you are cozy, you feel intimate and communal, even though you've just met these people, you're wandering in for the first time. And there's just such a lack of intimacy and community in our cities these days. It's, you know, going back to Putnam and bowling alone, like mm. our communal fabrics have been fraying in different ways and cities were better at that than the suburbs uh, for a long time, but as our cities get more and more exclusionary on price and kind of who gets to add their voice to the mix of the city, uh, we're losing that in our in our urban cores as well. So it sounds wonderful. Oh yeah, uh, what you just described there, I, I love it. It sounds great. I think we'll go back to the small business piece because that's fascinating on its own. But I did want to go back to something you mentioned earlier on in your answer, uh, which gets me to this point of like our obsession with space and in Western cities, um, you know, most people would prefer to have an extra two bedrooms than a cafe downstairs. And we're used to kind of these big grand homes and everyone wants a backyard. And I'm wondering where, at what point we kind of went down this path where we kind of decided that that's what we needed. And maybe neighborhoods were built around that. Like where did the philosophy, I guess, like around, living and what we need and the amount of space that we need. Um, what happened there? And, and is that like a, a factor in, in terms of what's kind of standing in the way to kind of help this thing come full circle at any point? Well, I am not an expert on uh, Western urban development history, but I will give a thought, which is in the 60s and 70s, the transition to car culture was massive. And before that transition, you actually saw a lot of um, similar, a lot more similarities, I think, in some ways between, uh, say, Tokyo's urban fabric and Western cities. You saw uh, much, much more shopkeepers living above their shops. You, you saw privately run uh, commuter rail lines out to su suburban developments. And in Tokyo, rail culture had a head start, but it also it survived the um, the auto boom of the 60s and 70s mm. in a way that 
um, that it didn't in most American cities. And, and uh, part of that was car culture really took off in Japan. It was a, they they Tokyo is a city of rivers, almost like waterways, like Venice. People don't realize that Tokyo is is that much of a water city, but that's because you look on Google Maps, you don't see them. They put free elevated freeways over all the waterways in the run up to the 64 Olympics. And so you had this massive shift towards car culture, the railways all started losing money. uh, But they started diversifying heavily, they got heavy into uh, suburban real estate development into shopping malls, um, to serve the the rising post-war consumer class. Uh, They got into all these other things and they still do like uh, adapting to change in Tokyo now, for example, the rise of dual income, young professional families, uh, some of the railway megacorps in Tokyo have affordable childcare subsidiaries now uh, offering essentially heavily subsidized private uh, childcare to make their railway suburbs more attractive than the next guy's for um, young families deciding where to settle. Um, So these diversified conglomerates uh, were able to survive the lean years of the auto boom uh, in, in shopping and real estate. And then as, as we realized the downsides of massive suburbanized car culture, they were able um, and, and the, the world has has overall kind of pivoted back uh, to mass transit or is trying to um they were very well positioned uh since they since they hadn't lost that uh so i think i think that's part of it but also for the longest time and this is starting to change now but for the longest time in tokyo your home is a depreciating asset which is such a strange thing from a Western perspective. The idea mm. that you expect your house uh, would go down, go down in value over time. That the real value is in the land, and you'll hear these kind of Orientalist, just so cultural explanations for why that is. Like, oh, the Japanese believe it is bad luck uh, to live in a, a, another person's house and inherit their sins. And like, no, if you, <laughs> if you actually look at what's happening over time, it was, um, earthquake standards, you know, Japan is very earthquake prone, uh, building standards were dramatically, uh, improving with each generation. And so an old house is like a very unsafe house in some sense Hmm. uh in a way that that you wouldn't necessarily see in in western cities and so if you knew that the new buyer was probably going to tear down your old house and put a new one in its place you wouldn't do major pricey repairs you know 10 20 30 years into owning your house you would just kind of patch it over and and wait until it was time to sell and so then you get a what's called a lemon economy, where you, if you're buying something used, you have to be really concerned about the the quality and the maintenance. Uh, but that's starting to change now because earthquake proofing standards in Japan, building standards have gotten as good as as 
anywhere. <laughs> They've, if, if anything, they're they are the leading nation in the in the world for earthquake building standards, and so they're they're now what they call hundred year homes, and so now the used housing market in Japan is is adapting to that, and homes are starting to be seen as proper investments in a way that they historically have not been. Um, so that may change things in the future, but for Americans, at least Americans are often relatively precarious with our savings. Our healthcare system, uh, is, I know Canada has got its own problems, but our healthcare system is a mess. Uh, all of these things mean that Americans are, are, generally operating from a scarcity mindset. We feel like we don't have enough. And our homes are, if we're homeowners, that's our major store of value. Like mm. most Americans, uh, their home is their their single most important asset. And so anything that might threaten the value of that asset, uh, you know, someone, the idea of someone opening up a bar next door to your house by right like in most american homeowners associations that would be just apocalyptic so I can only imagine oh my yeah. god so <laughs> it, it's um americans are very scared that someone will threaten the one major asset they have american homeowners of an earlier generation especially who are eyeing retirement or close to it and so you see their um you, you see there a major uh, a, a major NIMBY uh, movement uh, growing out of of that fear. Um, but there's there's also a, a very different uh, kind of fear that's relevant here and that is the origin of a lot of um, how American zoning works uh, and especially things like minimum lot sizes that you wouldn't uh, think of as, having a sinister origin story. They just seem bland and technical. Uh, but the origin in a lot of American urbanism uh, for these things was American racism, American white supremacy. It was seen as a way to keep marginalized groups of people, socioeconomically marginalized, uh, ra marginalized racial groups, to keep them out of neighborhoods, um, especially once you get past the era where you couldn't have a legal covenant saying no Jews, no blacks in this neighborhood. Um, you see a lot of construction of rules that seem on their face to be neutral, but in practice are very clearly have the underlying intent of preserving white white supremacy essentially preserving the unearned advantages of white people from an, an earlier generation um so both of those things heavily figure in i think you you mentioned uh housing before and how uh affordability has been more attainable in Tokyo because of the ability to build more supply, which is something that we struggle with in North American cities, particularly in Canadian cities. Is it just a function of 
zoning that they've been able to ramp up supply to meet demand or are there are there other policies huge work subsidies there? also huge subsidies um and that's the political economy of japan there's any for anyone who's really curious about the political economy of japan all three of you um there's a book called uh <laughs> circles of compensation by uh, kent calder former nyt tokyo bureau chief and we talk in america about the military industrial complex in um japan it's the construction industrial complex uh the May, the major builders and construction industry in Japan are deeply connected to the Japanese political establishment. And so historically, you get kind of a, a balance there where they have employed tons of people. Um, they they finally adapted to a lot more modern technological practices, but for a long time, and still to this day, to some extent, you see a lot of make work uh, in Japanese construction. Um, just imp- they they employ a ton of people and people mm-hmm. who wouldn't necessarily have great great jobs or any jobs otherwise. Um, in, in at least in some of those cases. And in exchange, there are major subsidies for construction. Uh, I, I will say that actually, Japan's homeless population, a huge chunk of Japan's homeless population, uh, is basically a specific generational glut from when the, the Japanese construction industry uh, adopted a lot more modern technology and automation and a lot of uh, day laborers in Japanese construction uh, fell into um, into poverty and into homelessness. And as that generation, because that was kind of, I think, in the 80s, I believe, um, as that generation has, has now started to die off just of, of the combination of old age and tough living, um, the, Japan's homeless population is, is returning to a lower natural natural level uh so yeah the construction industry uh and it's their dance with uh the political parties of japan is a is a huge part of it um in, in think of it in, in the same way that farming and agriculture we always know in, mo- in most countries farmers are a huge constituency and, sure. and they have their their political uh, web with with the government and, and same thing with with construction in Japan. And, and just to for context for people, if I'm going out in Tokyo and looking to rent a two bedroom apartment, say, yeah, what am I expecting to pay as a normal person as a share of my income? So I rented in 2019, I rented a two bedroom uh, place. It was a three story row house, uh, two bedroom place. Um, it was a little retro kitsch. It was uh, kind of 1970s, 60s, 70s era. Uh, but I like that. I like that sort of thing. And that place uh, was in a relatively nice neighborhood. Um, 
uh, an older, uh, kind of an old school neighborhood surrounded by nice stuff in the heart of the city, right near Tokyo Tower, the uh, Japanese equivalent of the Eiffel Tower. I literally could step outside my front door and there's the Japanese Eiffel Tower looming over me beautifully. The suspense is killing me. I need to know how much it was. <laughs> oh, uh, 900 bucks a month. Oh, oh my God. God. Yeah. <laughs> now, granted, oh. if I wanted uh, a more, you know, luxury upscale place, you know, I might've been paying more than that. And, and I, I use 20, I think 2019 is a good example because right now, temporarily the exchange rate is so skewed. It's like, a. um, close to a 50 year all time uh, favorable exchange rate for uh, Americans at least going to um, going to Japan uh, that everything seems unbelievably cheap right now I just Mm. I just signed on a small apartment in Tokyo to finish my the rest of my book research and my PhD research and in a, a neighborhood that I really love my favorite neighborhood in the city and that's kind of a a, a one bedroom for four hundred dollars a month, uh, and granted, it doesn't have a shower. You walk to the local community sauna five minutes away for your your daily shower with the the old guys. You would love that uh, community <laughs> sauna. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god! It's great. Um, that sauna, by the way, Denki, you shout out to them. Uh, they are featured in the new Wim Wenders movie, Perfect Days, uh, that is now Japan's entry uh, to the Oscars. Um, oh, cool. Absolutely beautiful movie coming out in the West, uh, I think, at the end of this month. And a lot of it was filmed in my neighborhood in Tokyo, in Kyojima. So uh, definitely, if you, if you want to see... Uh, the the beauty of of old timey downtown Tokyo, uh, Perfect Days is a beautiful movie for that. Um, but yeah, that's so so four hundred dollars a month. That's a, you're getting into a little bit of absurd territory there. But um, but yeah, about nine hundred dollars a month uh, with a, a a two bedroom, charmingly old school row house in the heart of the city, with a shower. Yes. A small one, but yeah, I'm 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 five foot four. I'm not that huge, so I was fine. <laughs> uh, what else is? I mean, let's talk a little bit about because I'm still so fascinated by the fact that there are all these kind of like decentralized districts, and and none really kind of grows more than the other. And obviously, what connects all that is is transit, and so. Um, I'm wondering, as far as we're talking about uh, planning in the city and ease of access and just how people move around, um, can we talk a little bit about transit and and how that works in in Tokyo? How do people use it? Is it an efficient system? I think it is, but what's uh, what's the deal with transit? Uh, transit in Tokyo works incredibly well. Um, it also it has to, in the sense that the kind of train delays that you see in say in most north american cities uh if those happen in tokyo it wouldn't just be oh there's a delay here uh it would absolutely grind the system to the halt to a halt and the reason for that is because uh express trains and local trains are often sharing track and the express trains rapid commuter trains things like that 
are passing the local trains while the local train is pulled into the station um, without a dedicated express track. So if the local train is suddenly a couple minutes delayed, those passing timings all start to break in a cascade. They call it all the timings, they call it the diamond. And you'll sometimes see a notification on the uh, digital signboards in a Tokyo train station that says the diamond has been broken, um, which means oh God, that's uh, uh, yeah. uh, which means you you text your boss, uh, yeah, not sure when I'm going to be in. We'll figure it out um, because yeah, it's so that high degree of efficiency is key. There's also multiple companies, uh, multiple train companies sharing in many cases, the same uh, rolling uh, stock, the same the same train cars, um, as the train travels through a, se- a section of track. And you'll, you'll see it at a given station, for example, there's a, a train I take every day from uh, my neighborhood in Tokyo, into the city when I when I'm there, um, where it goes from above ground to below ground, and when it does, the conductor, as 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 at the station when passengers are getting on and off, the conductor gets out, kind of does a little nod to the new conductor, passes, and, and it's just a, a very quick changing of the guard in fifteen seconds, and then it's a new conductor from a different company running the train because for the next however many stations, it's a different company operating those stations and so a huge percentage of tokyo's transit network is in private hands Uh, a lot is in public hands too and the private and public um they even hand off like that so Hmm. there's there's a sense in which if you don't have that efficiency the system literally could not function and uh, nature loves a forcing function but also there is a sense of we don't have a time machine, so we can't go back to the 1910s, 1920s when the railway conglomerates in Japan just bought up incredible quantities of farmland at very cheap prices uh, to build out their their transit networks and their, their suburban communities. And that is um, that is a shame because now you you know you want to build new railway networks in in america at least the the cost per mile is just unbelievable mm-hmm. um but in japan for the most part they're not needing to build out new lines the lines go where they need to already and were at least the initial versions were done at a time uh, where uh where where real estate was cheap and now it's just a question of, of upgrading maintenance. Um, trains don't run um, past roughly midnight each night until the first train in the morning. And that uh, is, is actually uh, really a cheat code for uh, track and, and, and train maintenance. Um, as, as if you're leaving on the if you're leaving the station after the last train of the night, you'll see all the cleaning crews and maintenance crews ready to go in. Uh, so uh, the that is, that is just a, a different way of structuring the city. And there's not a night bus system either, like the Parisian Noctilien system or anything like that. Uh, for the most part, 
if you um if you stay out past last train either you're walking home you're biking home you're taxiing home uh, at a relatively high price or you are staying out until first train uh perhaps in a by the hour hotel um which are clean and ubiquitous or things like that hmm so I, I know we're running towards the end of our time with you here. So I, I want to end on, uh, you know, one or two big takeaways that you think Western cities or provinces or states should learn from Japan. You know, if the governor of New York or the premier of Ontario came to you tomorrow and said, Joe, give me two things, three things that I can take from Tokyo to implement here. What would you tell them? I would say, first off, um, the more you can move zoning upwards uh, to a more um, a, a, a more centralized political level, uh, the more you can beat not only nimbyism but just just general inertia in building. Um, and I, I know national zoning. Uh, Japan-style national zoning is is not going to happen uh, in most places. But if you can move up to the provincial level, say, or in America, the state level, uh, that, I think, is the most important... Uh, the most important thing to, to give consistency and clarity on what will or won't be allowed so everything doesn't become a perpetual case-by-case negotiation. That's one. But two, and the one that is absolutely, I think, most uh, near and dear to my heart is simply let people run little personal businesses out of the bottom floor of their housing. Uh, That's something we're trying to legalize in America with what's called ACUs, accessory commercial units, essentially saying you can run a consumer-facing small business out of your garage if you want to. Um, it's it's a huge, it's a it's a small policy change that just completely changes uh, the the feel of neighborhood life for the better. And I think, sure letting your neighbor run a bar out of their bottom floor is not going to fly in most American cities, but okay, let them run a little bookstore let them run a little cafe, you know, like let's at least open this door a crack and let people try things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if we don't have to go full Tokyo all at once, but just if you even that open that door, people are going to love it. They're going to clamor for more. Okay. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. The book, if you want to read it, is Emergent Tokyo. We'll put that in the show notes. And if people want to hear more from you, is there anywhere that they can follow you online or get updates from you? Yeah. uh, My name on Twitter is McReynoldsJoe. Uh, So yeah, follow follow me on Twitter and you can get updates uh, from me working on a new book about kind of uh, hidden heroes of Tokyo urbanism who have lessons for cities around the world. Uh, mm. It's more uh, human focused and yeah, looking forward to seeing what happens in the, in the near future. In our well, looking forward to reading that book. This was uh, fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. 
Well, that was such an interesting conversation with Joe. How badly did you feel when you heard what he was paying for his two-bedroom, three-story townhome in Tokyo? No, what's even worse is the one bet. Like, that was less than I was paying in university. The $400. I know. I've literally never. Never. And I rented. That's like a car. That was a car payment in 2015. Yeah. (laughs) No. Like, my first apartment, apartment, my first living space out of university, my third year of university, I guess, when I moved out of res, was a room in a rooming house where I also had to share a shower. No sauna. I did not have have a shower. I did not have, uh, you know, a private bathroom of any sort. Basically, just like a room with a bed. And even then, that was 600 bucks. But what's important to mention is that it's not just that Japan is affordable and wages in Japan have, I think, lagged behind OECD nations. But wages there, I think, are still relatively up there, right? I think right. It's when you actually kind of break down how people still make good salaries in Japan overall, in, in Tokyo, I should say, not not Japan as a whole. And so it's really does come down to this question of affordability, like how they do it, how they've managed to keep prices so low. I Googled before this conversation, and I think the average one bedroom is like a thousand bucks. It was wow. saying it might even be less than that, wow. judging from this conversation, but that is astonishing to me. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. Um, I would love to see us adopt the zoning <laughs> that <laughs> Joe was talking about because, man, if I was only paying 900 bucks for my apartment, imagine what you could do with that extra cash. It just makes You could start sense. a little business on the ground floor in a cafe. That would be the dream. Yeah. Yeah. It's... I do think of like, how far can you actually walk back these things that are so ingrained in our urban planning these days? Like the number one thing that Joe mentioned was zoning, which Mm -hmm. is like, I think cities individually in Canada are like kind of trying to make like little tweaks here and there. Um, Like the Vancouver, I guess, just like zoning, Mm -hmm. like zoning law that allowed to kind of build more multiplexes. I mean, that's interesting, but it's like, you wonder how, far you can actually push it like how much you can actually correct just like a bad zoning policy which really is uncentralized and kind of in the hands of municipalities and, and different count- counselors and kind of um feeds the system that stokes this like nimbyism that we've been talking about so much and it's so much more than the just you know i can build three stories versus five stories like what he was talking about being able to put residential basically anywhere you want and being able to put small scale businesses in residential neighborhoods is something that we just you know with very few exceptions can even uh contemplate having but what i thought was interesting about that is that you know in toronto people's favorite neighborhood when they come to visit is kensington market right yeah which is the one place in the city where you can actually do that, where, you know, there is this mix of like little tiny cafes and shops and bars and, you know, people's homes on top. Uh, we've <laughs> managed to confine all of that to two blocks and it's the most popular tourist destination in the city. I know it's like the most popular street, but you go to places, I'm assuming like Tokyo and like every street kind of looks like that. Yeah. Is it just one big Kensington market? It <laughs> 
don't think that guess is too far off. But I'd be interested to know because if you go a bit west of the city as well and off of there's this, you know, for listeners that don't know Toronto, there's this one strip kind of called Ossington, which is which is similar. It's kind of like a mixed use type situation. And if you go a bit more west, there's like these neighbor there's these neighborhoods where there are kind of there's like that pizza shop batty alley that's opened up mm-hmm. um you know at the corner of a really residential neighborhood there's um you know a good restaurant with roast chickens kind of that i think is in a house so these business i'm just wondering what happened there because you're kind of starting to see at least in that area some of the businesses businesses branch out and every night these places are full packed. or at lunch they're yeah. packed and it's just there's such a need for it um but like joe said right now in most places there's no reason to i mean actually be in your neighborhood like you mentioned unless you have close friends by and that's yeah kind of sad yeah it is sad and you know he talked about how the uh cheap startup costs for these businesses because of how the city is designed and has developed allows people to pursue things that you know they otherwise would not be able to pursue. And I thought that was a really uh, interesting and admirable quality that we should try to emulate. Like we are uh, a business media company Mm -hmm. and we see a lot of people who get into entrepreneurship, but it's just so much harder when you have all these costs that are, are weighing you down. So I think, you know, if you want to, if you care about entrepreneurship, you care about supporting small businesses and that sort of thing. And generally like a vibrant economy, local yeah. economies. Yeah. You know, what better thing could we do than try to adopt some of those lessons? Well, it feels like we have a couple of pretty actionable takeaways from Joe. Look at the zoning, let people run cafes out of their basements yeah. and we'll see where we end up after that. I co-sign that. Yeah, 100%. All right, well, should we leave it there? I think so. Okay, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find all of our past interviews by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get podcasts. And please head to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to leave us a positive review and we'll see you next week. Positive.